Well, uh, like I said, we're wrapping up a conversation that we've been having throughout the month of August. If you've been here for any part of that conversation, the next few minutes might feel a little redundant, but I want to offer the framing that's been surrounding the whole thing one more time before we introduce uh, our guest voice that's going to speak to us today, and then we'll sort of get into the meat of this conversation tonight. Uh, But we've been asking throughout this month, what's a church or what's a person of faith to do at a moment that we're living in like the one that we're living in right now? And this goes back to the very first conversation we had as a church about what South Bend City Church would be, and it also applies to some of the questions that we've been asking uh, in the past few weeks. But uh, to to get at that, we've used a couple of symbols, uh, and I'm going to put these in front of you one more time. On the left, you have a triquetra, this ancient symbol from Celtic spirituality that gets sort of brought into Christian storytelling. And this has been for centuries now a reminder of the peculiar Christian story that we tell one another in our faith, that God is Father and Creator, that God wants the world to be here, that He delights in the world being here, that God is Son, that God is incarnate, that God is wrapped up in flesh and blood, that God has suffered and died and been raised to new life in flesh and blood in a body, which is good news for all of us because if His death is our death somehow, then His resurrection might be our resurrection somehow, and that God is Spirit, that God is is with us that God is in us, that God wants to be a part of the project of what we are becoming, leading us toward a future where we grow more and more into what he has asked us or called us to be. Uh, So this is a symbol for the kind of story that the Christians have always been telling. Excuse me, a way of interpreting the scriptures and a way of rooting ourselves in that story. And then on the right, we have another triangle, which is a delta, uh, which in math equations and finance and medical charts is sometimes a symbol that names change in a variable. And we've just recognized that this is a period of radical change that we are living in, that not all periods of change are created equal, that not all humans at all periods in history have experienced the same amount of change, and that right now, with the sort of perfect storm of technology and philosophy and stories that are available, we're living at a moment where there's really radical change going on in the human experience. And I'm arguing that a person of faith and a community of faith have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with these two things? I've suggested that you could, for example, decide the stuff on the left, rooted faith, uh, traditional Orthodox Christian story, that that's our business, and the stuff on the right, the change, the new questions, the new information, the new perspectives, that that's a distraction that we should ignore. I've argued you could go a little further than that, and you can say the stuff on the left, the rooted faith stuff, that that's our business, and the stuff on the right isn't just a distraction, but it's actually a threat. And then people like me stand on stages like this and tell people like you, don't read those books, don't ask those questions, don't even explore that stuff because it's dangerous and we got to build a hedge around ourselves and protect ourselves from the stuff that's going on right now. I've argued there's a third posture, which is to kind of go the other way, which is to say the stuff on the left, the rooted faith, the historic orthodoxy, that stuff's inconvenient today or it's old-fashioned or antiquated and it's sort of unfortunate and we should just sort of move on from it. And at that point, you might find yourself just giving yourself over to whatever's sort of blowing in the wind right now. You might find yourself assuming that whatever the most recent thinking is on any given question, that's definitely the best thinking. Those are a few postures that we could have with these two things, right? But I'm suggesting there's a fourth way of dealing with these two realities, and it's to locate faith in the tension between them, to not give up on our roots, to not walk away from them, but to not turn a blind eye toward the world that we are living in right now and the questions that are being raised right now. So in the past couple of weeks, we've tried to play around with that a little bit. We talked about science and faith and about new perspectives of of where life comes from and how they sort of interact with or live in tension with the Christian story. We talked about sexuality last week. I preached for 80 minutes. I promise not to do that tonight. 
Uh, in fact, I'm not going to preach at all tonight. Uh, tonight, I have a, a dear friend of mine who has come here from New York City to speak to us, and I'm really excited. I'll bring him up here in a second, and then you can welcome him. Uh, but Jonathan Merritt is a prolific writer on religion in America. He writes in faith and culture. Uh, you might know Jonathan's name or work because he's a contributing writer to The Atlantic. You might know Jonathan because you've seen him on Fox and Friends or MSNBC, or you might have read him in The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. Uh, Jonathan has written a new book called Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And when he uh, sent me an early copy of it, I was excited because it, it just felt like it would be so helpful for the very thing that we're trying to do as a church. So I've got Jonathan here. He's going to talk to us. Will you please welcome Jonathan Merritt? Welcome. Welcome to the Tuesday night crowd. Oh, yeah. I'm glad to be here. I did not promise not to preach for 80 minutes, I'd like to say. So. <laughs> we have a mute button. We're not yeah, afraid to okay. use it. Uh, right on. Hey, let's, let's just jump right into it, Jonathan. Uh, so you describe in the book a bit of biography. You grew up in the Bible Belt. Tell us about that and then your transition to New York City. Yeah, I grew, yes, I grew up in the Bible Belt uh, in a very Christianized world. I grew up in the son of uh, a really prominent pastor and televangelist. I uh, went to Christian school, to Christian college. I, I became a pastor and was just sort of insulated in this world where everybody kind of thought like me and talked like me and believed like I believe. We all, most of us, went to the same church. And then about five years ago, I was writing full-time, and I decided to make the leap and move from the Bible Belt to New York City. And when I did, I ran into an unexpected language barrier. It, it wasn't that I could no longer speak English, right? I could still order a hot dog at a street cart or relay an address to an Uber driver, but I could no longer speak God. Uh, that I began to struggle to have spiritual or religious conversations with people. Somebody would ask me, well, what do you do? And I would say, oh, I'm, a, I'm a religion writer. And they'd say, oh, what does that mean? Or what do you believe about that uh, sin stuff or heaven stuff or afterlife stuff? Or what do you think about the Bible? Or what, is, what does grace mean to you? Or what does it mean to be saved? And, and uh, I would stammer and stutter and sputter and I couldn't get words out. And I suddenly realized that it's a lot easier to write about a post-Christian culture than it is to live in one. I think I've heard you describe that what began as some resistance to that language around you eventually became sort of an internal discomfort with that language. Is that right? Yeah, because it was not just that, and I know a lot of us have these same experiences, that it was not just that they didn't understand what I talked about when I talked about God. Sometimes they would push back and they would ask, and I would realize, yeah, I didn't really know what I meant either. I mean, I know in a room like this, if I passed out index cards and I asked everybody to write down the definition of the word gospel or the definition of the word grace, we would get almost as many answers as there are people in the room. Some of us, there are words that we have used so often, we don't even know what they mean anymore. People who've grown up in the church, you know, the late Dallas Willard said that, that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, which breeds contempt, which means you can talk about things so much, you can you sort of swim in this vocabulary, in this language, and you wake up one day and you realize you don't know what it means, or even worse, you start to feel that because of your experience in the world, that those words and the definitions that you've attached to them are no longer competent to carry the weight of the world in context conversations. And so the result is, and at least it was in my life, and I think it is for many of us, you just stop speaking God altogether. You just say, it's too fraught, it's too difficult, there are too many obstacles, and you stop having spiritual conversations. So this goes from a personal experience 
to some research and some larger observations about what's happening in the world right now. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so I, you know, I thought, okay, this is, it, this is my experience. But then I started having conversations with people in, in, in places in the Midwest, places on both of the coast and in rural and urban areas. People came from all walks of life who were saying, you know, I feel these same tensions. But that was just anecdotal. So I thought, you know, as a journalist, I thought maybe this is something I should dig a little bit deeper into. So I started to dig and I found two really important trends that were going on. I was shocked. I didn't know that either of these were happening. The first is what I call the death of sacred speech. So, you know, these days, everything goes back to Google. And Amen. it's no surprise, like the six degrees of Google, right? Everything goes back to Google because they're this big monster that runs our lives. So Google, a few years ago, released their Ingram data. May, most of you probably don't know what this is, but they basically took uh, most of the books that have been written in the English language, going back to about 1500, and they scanned them all in, and they made them searchable. So like a seven-year-old in rural Arkansas can search at any point in modern history the, the usage, the frequency of usage of different words if he has an internet connection. Just when you're thinking this sounds weird, for the record, this is me on a good Friday night. Just me and my computer and a cup of coffee, just love it. People are kind of laughing. They're also like, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, but you're in this with me, so keep going. So I, I went and I, I started to see what, what were people finding when they analyzed this data, because it's been written about, it's been poured over, and what it found is, is that since the early 20th century, particularly spiking in the mid-20th century, there has been a massive decline in religious and spiritual words, what I call sacred speech, in the Western world. So uh, you look at words like, you would expect this, like a word like atonement or sanctification. Like these, of course, they've, they've decreased. Like those big meaty theological words, they're hard to get your mouth around. Those have decreased. But what's fascinating is even basic moral words, virtue words, have been in, in massive decline. So uh, words like courage, courage words, compassion words, kindness words, the word grace, all of these words have, have decreased in usage by 50% or more in the last 100 years. So these words are sort of falling out of usage, and we didn't realize that this was even happening. I mean, we kind of felt that, that culture was becoming more pluralistic or more secular, but we didn't really realize what was going on until recently. But then I thought, okay, those words could be falling out of usage, but what about when we use other words to talk about spiritual things? So if you come to a place like this, uh, you might hear Jason say something like, you know what, find somebody you don't know and invest in them. Well, if you're just searching that, that shows up as an economic word, but it's actually a communal word. The only way to know what you're talking about is to ask you if you're having a spiritual conversation or not. So I got together with this social research firm called the Barna Group. We did a national survey of over 1,000 Americans. We asked them, how often do you have spiritual or religious conversations? And I was just shocked. Only 7% of Americans said they had a spiritual religious conversation on a regular basis. Now, that's despite almost 71% of Americans who say that they are Christian. Only 10% say that they talk about their faith regularly, which is only about a once a week basis. But then I thought, what about like super religious folks, right? Folks that uh, they're committed enough to show up at church on a Tuesday. Thank you. 
You guys this are is so religious. That's what I think right? when I think of you. Really, guys. the really committed folks. What about you? Like you, you're all surely you're out there like talking about spiritual things. This is important to you. It matters to you. Actually, it's not true. Only 13% of committed practicing Christians say they speak about faith on a regular basis. That means if you look around you, you look down your aisle, only one in eight of you have enough confidence in your faith to talk about it on a regular basis. So I started to see there was something that was breaking I, down. I keep telling Jonathan, Southland City Church is exceptionally well-led, so that doesn't apply here. But I'm sure that for all the other churches in the country, that's the right. case. Please give, please give uh, him a hug later today. He needs some <laughs> affirmation. But the, uh, what I realized was is there's this natural connection that, that is sort of occurs in humans where there's a connection between passion, interest, and articulation, right? Let's say that you, you, you like Notre Dame football. I'm going to know about that if I hang out with you because you're going to talk about it, right? If you have children, you're going to talk about your kids. You're going to show me, even if I don't want to see pictures of your kids, you're going to say, oh my God, look at what little Tyler did this week. Wasn't that so cute? And you're going to talk about Tyler because you love Tyler, right? You talk about the things that you care about. That's the way it works. And yet, in America, the majority of people say they pray, they say they believe in a higher power, they say that spirituality matters to them, and some, for some reason, that, that, that connection between passion and articulation has been fractured. And so I wanted to figure out what went on, did it matter, and was there something we could do about it? Let's do a little more on did it matter. So I hear you saying like, yeah, we talk about things that matter to us, so maybe this is a symptom that's telling us that faith isn't as important to us as we thought or something, I hear that. Uh, but but you, you did more research. There's other angles or other ideas on top of that about what might be at stake in the loss of sacred language or spiritual conversation. Say more about what we lose when we lose that. Well, we lose a lot. I think the first thing that we have to really ask is, is why? Why are we not talking about faith? And there are a number of reasons why. I mean, a number of them, I bet many of you could probably give us reasons why you don't talk about faith. In fact, I asked Jason if I could do this. I'm going to pick up my book here because I've got a little infograph in the book and I want to ha do a little experiment in the room. I told him you guys are up for a little bit of interaction, right? Good. I figure we can do this. Everybody's like, yeah, right. maybe. It depends what you're going to do. We don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something, and if you agree with this, if you've ever felt like this, I want you to raise your hand and keep it raised. Does that make sense? Super easy. All right. How many of you would say religious conversations always seem to create tension or arguments? Raise your hand. Don't be shy now. How many of you say, uh, I feel put off by how religion has been politicized? Raise your hand. Everybody keep them up. How many of you say, you know what? I just feel like I don't know enough about religion or spirituality to talk about these things well. Raise your hands. Keep them up if you've raised your hands. How many of you say, I don't, I'm afraid that if I talk about these things in mixed company, I'll be perceived as a fanatic or an extremist? Anybody? So you can see like, most of the room already, we've gotten through like, what, four of the top 13 answers. What's interesting about this, and you can do it in any room, in any part of the country, and you'll find this is true. You don't have to move to New York City because the world is changing, north, south, east, west. It's changing in a place like, and a part of it's just because we live in the digital age. You can't get away from it now. That, that the types of influence that, that are present in my city are present here thanks to the internet and social media. So you, those same voices are speaking into all of our lives. The, the notion that the rules are changing has sort of bled into every community. And as a result, we're all feeling these tensions right now. So this sort of raw observation 
led you into some linguistic study. Tell us yep. like where that took you next. So, so that begs the question. We're not speaking God. Sacred, sacred speech is dying. Spiritual conversations are in massive decline. And if current trends persist, the vocabulary of faith will be an endangered species or nearly extinct in my lifetime. But does it matter? I mean, this is a big question, right? Does it matter? Because why would I spend four and a half years writing this book? And why would I hope that you spend four and a half hours reading it if it just is, this is just what happens and it doesn't matter? It actually does matter. I took a year and a year of this, this project, I just studied linguistics. And what I found was, is there's this, this intimate connection that we're only seeing now from this emerging body of research showing that there is a connection between the words that we use, the languages that we speak, and the thoughts we think, and a connection between the thoughts we think and our behavior patterns as a society. So for example, if you grow up speaking uh, Thai, uh, Taiwanese, or you grow up speaking uh, English or French, your thought patterns are different within those cultures. You've been shaped a certain way because of the languages you use. I'll give you a great example. I talk about this in the book. It's the notion of the future. So yesterday, I said to Jason, hey, tomorrow, we are going to go to South Bend City Church, right? I, I have to sort of put a tense on that verb. I have to talk about the future or the past or the present. That's what English forces me to do. It's a futured language. But Chinese, for example, is not a futured language. Uh, Chinese, you would say, I go South Bend City Church, and you would know kind of from context clues when it would be. Well, you think, oh, that's just, you know, not a real big difference. It actually is a very big difference. If you compare our two cultures, a, a futured culture and a non-futured culture, you will find that we think about the future more often. We save more for retirement. We practice more safe sex. We smoke less per capita than they do. We prepare more for death than they do. There are even uh, more um, nuanced versions of a futured self in the way that we sort of conceive of ourselves here. So when Oprah goes on television and says, you should become your best self, that's an idea that really works for people who've been shaped by the English language. It doesn't work so well in other contexts. Why does that matter? I know I'm geeking out, but I did it so you don't have to do it. You're welcome. Why does it matter? If we don't talk about certain things, we do not think about certain things. So if you show up at a place like this and you care about God, you care about spirituality, you care about the inner life, if we don't talk about those things, our minds will not be attuned to transcendence. Our lives will not be built around supernatural realities. But you go even a step further because you remember some of the other virtues that I mentioned that are in decline. If we don't talk about courage and grace and compassion and kindness, we don't think about those things. And what will happen is what has already happened for many of us in the last couple of years. We wake up one day and we realize, wow, we're living in a world that's not very gracious, that's not very kind, that's not very compassionate, that's not very courageous. And what we are just now coming to understand is, is that we have been creating this type of culture in part by the way that we have used language. This is a big deal, right? So you're saying that language isn't simply expressing something within me or describing my experience, but that it's forming something within me, that it's actually shaping my thinking, my experience. It goes both ways. Yes. You know, that's uh, one of the things, I don't know how many of you 
what types of churches you grew up in, but there are a lot of places you go. You go to kind of a typical American evangelical megachurch. They understand uh, language in kind of the modern Western way, which kind of recognizes one side of the coin, language as expressive, right? We, you, and that's how a lot of us think about it. What is language? It's a tool to express what I feel or think or believe. Language does that. So that's why you go to a megachurch and like, whatever goes into the microphone is simply whatever is occurring in me at this moment and just coming out of me. But you come to other churches and you have liturgy. And that liturgy sounds weird to people who are raised in evangelical settings because why? I don't feel that. I'm not thinking that. I'm using somebody else's words. But that's drawing on the notion of language as not just expressive, but formative. Language doesn't just express what we feel and think and believe. Language actually shapes and forms what we feel and we think and we believe. So when we come to a place like this and we, we recite prayers, we're actually entering into this tradition trusting that those words are forming us the way they have formed generation after generation after generation of God's speaker before us. Yeah, I think about um, his, the certain historic Christian communities. It's been normal to pray out loud the entire cycle of the Psalms, all 150 of them, over a certain period of days or weeks. And you would keep praying out loud all the Psalms. And I don't know about you if you've ever read the Psalms, but you open that part of the Bible and sometimes you think, oh man, I really feel this one. And there's other Psalms where you're like, I don't feel anything that's describing, so obviously I'm not gonna pray it because that's inauthentic. But you're saying there's a whole other thing about that, which is to form the heart, the mind in a certain way, which leads to behaviors and all sorts of stuff. Uh, Augustine, uh, has an image that I'm crazy about. He says, um, he's sort of bemoaning the fact that in part of his life, he wasn't trained up in like the way of praying that are in the Psalms. And he's sort of speaking to God and he says, if only my heart had been trained on the Psalms the way that a vine grows up a trellis. And I find that really meaningful. There's like a structure that the language provides for us to grow up into, right? And you're saying the loss of language is the loss of that. Yeah. That's right. So we, we are, we're, we're not just losing the ability to express what we think and feel and believe about our faith. We're also not being shaped as people of faith because we're not speaking these words. So you, your research goes further, though. And if, if that's the situation right now, you've also learned that there's a, a few different ways that we could do something about that or navigate that reality. Yeah, I mean, if you care about, and I'm guessing if you show up to church, many of you out there, I'm not saying all of you, but many of you, you probably do think like, I believe in this stuff, and, and I think maybe we should be talking about faith. And it's pretty depressing when you hear these numbers, that, that sacred speech is dying in America, in, in the English-speaking world. But it's not all that depressing. When I was studying linguistics, I kept running across this phrase, and I didn't know what it meant when I first read it. It was the phrase, comeback language. And I was like, what is a comeback language? What I realized is, is that every year, there are so many thousands of languages that are spoken, and every year, many of those languages uh, disappear. They vanish. They're gone forever. Every year, certain numbers of languages die. But then there are a number throughout history that have become comeback languages. They've gone to the brink, or they've started the process of dying, and they've come back. They have been revived. They've been brought back to life. So I wanted to know... Well, what, what, what makes a language a comeback language? A great example of this, probably the most uh, popular example, is Hebrew. 
right? Remember, Hebrew was basically a dead language. And then with the rise of the modern Israeli nation state, uh, it was revived. Yiddish is another kind of a Jewish uh, dialect, uh, almost died out with the Holocaust, Eastern Europeans. And then if you come now to my neighborhood in Brooklyn, you go to the south side to the Hasidic Jewish quarter, you will hear them speaking Yiddish. Yiddish is a comeback language. Gaelic, Irish is another one. Uh, Catalan is another one. Uh, Hawaiian is one. Uh, Hawaiian is a comeback language. So there are all these languages that have gone to the brink and come back, and I thought, maybe if those languages have come back, maybe our language, the language of faith, the vocabulary of faith could be brought back to life as well. So, so how does that happen? Well, uh, it's sort of interesting. I started to look and see what, what would happen when you, when you encounter these dying languages. You know, it stands to reason if a living language can die, then a dying language can be re revived. And so I wanted to figure out what caused a language to be revived or not be revived. And I found that whenever a language was dying, speakers would take one of three approaches. One was really bad, one was not so good and didn't work, and one did work. And I'll kind of talk them through because it's exactly the postures that we are seeing today in the church. Many of you have got family members who take some of these postures or even you. You didn't even realize you took this posture. The first is what I call fossilization. Fossilization is where you protect words. And we've all been in churches like this. Conservative Christians in particular love this. They do it with good intentions because they love the language, but it's a really bad approach. It's the approach that says, I'm going to build a fence around all of these words, these religious words, and the meanings that I've attached to them, and do not touch my words. And if you question whether I understand these or whether we should reconsider what these mean, you are, you're cast out. You're not part of the community anymore because we like our nice, neat, tidy box here and all of our definitions. So we all just sort of can write down our definitions, memorize them, and then our job is to go out and convince people that they don't understand what these words mean, they need to accept our meanings, and, and then we feel good about ourselves and they've been converted to our way of thinking. That is the fastest way to accelerate the death of a language because linguists agree, not on a lot, but they do agree on this, every language will either change or it will die, period. There are 0.00 exceptions to this. Every language is always moving toward either evolution or extinction. And the same is true for the language of faith. We can talk about this in a minute, about oh, yeah. how that's always been happening to the language of faith. We're so, just interacting at a certain point. So fossilization is a very bad approach. So like you might come at me and, and you might hear me saying the word gospel. And you might say, hey, Jason, what do you mean by that? Can we talk about what you're packing inside that word? And I might feel threatened by that. I might, I might say, no, we don't mess with that. We don't go there. We should all know what that means and never really explore both what it did mean and what it means now. It just gets sort of locked into a place. Yeah, like, you know, you go up the street to, like, um, uh, there are places in Michigan the re that Reformed churches are really a big deal, right? Some of you, maybe you have family in Reformed churches. You go into a ref most Reformed churches today, just try this. It's not going to go well for you. Go into a Sunday school class and say, I don't think you really, we, we really have thought through what sovereignty means. I think we should talk about that. I don't think that we really have thought through There's, there's some recovering people in the room right now that are laughing. I, well, you know, we, and we all, and every tradition has their, has their sacrosanct yeah. phrases, their sacred cows. But you go in and you say that, and you're not going to be around long, right? Because they're, they're going to say, no, 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 we don't question this. We already know what all of this means. Your job is just to accept it. Our job is to convince you that you need to accept it, and that's it. These things are not open for discussion. They are closed. That is a really fat. First of all, you repel doubters. If you have any doubts, you're out of there. 
right? If, if you have questions, you're out of there. And that's one of the number one reasons we know this from statistics these days that have been done by places like Barna. Barna says one of the number one reasons that young people leave the church today is they say, my questions and my doubts are not welcome. They went into a church, they questioned what a couple of words meant, they were quickly shown the door, and that was it for them. They said, to heck with the church. Uh, I, I, I want to go somewhere that, that values kind of intellectual rigor. So that's a very bad approach. The second approach, also good intentions, and liberal Christians love this one, but it doesn't work is what I call substitution. So just like fossilization will pitch, uh, will protect words, substitution will pitch words. They, they say, okay, let's take a word that we don't like. Let's say it's sin, right? Sin's kind of a, uh, not a great word. People these days, they're maybe triggered by it, right? So they go, I'm not going to use sin. So we're going to get rid of sin. We're not going to talk about sin. It's not a good word for us. And they might find a replacement word. So they might say, we're going to talk about messiness or we're gonna talk about brokenness. So they replace it, and it's the same concept, it's just now you've got a different word. Or somebody will say, you know, I've got a friend who's in LA, and he says, we don't talk about God in our church, we talk about the universe. And you say, tell me about the universe. And he just tells you basically what somebody would tell you about God. And you go, okay, I get it. You just substituted some other word for that word. There are lots of problems with this. One, uh, it doesn't deal with the problem. It solves a problem that doesn't exist. How many of you, how many of you, raise your hands, you don't like, you're offended by the word sin or you're triggered by the word sin or the, you just don't really think you'd feel comfortable using that at the water cooler? <laughs> raise your hand. Most of us, yeah, most of us. Um, the, the fact is, none of us actually are. Nobody is actually offended by the word sin. A word has no meaning in and of itself. Nobody is offended by putting the letter S next to the letter I next to the letter N. It's the idea that we have attached to that word that has become problematic. You might think of a word as like an empty cardboard box, right? You put the idea inside. We don't like the idea. So just taking that idea out and putting it in a new box doesn't solve the problem. You solved a problem that didn't exist, and you haven't solved the problem that did exist. The, the problem was is that we wanted to wrestle with what this idea of sin has come to mean for us. So that's number one. Number two, Christians and, and Muslims and Jews, by the way, also uh, consider ourselves people of the book. We have a sacred text that we gather around, and that sacred text has words in it. So you can stop talking about sin or you can stop talking about God, but eventually you go back to that text or you hear that text read or you read that text and you start bumping up against this word and you realize you actually didn't do anything to get rid of the word. You just stopped using it. You're now less equipped to engage your own sacred text than you were before. Now you're not just estranged from the vocabulary of faith. You're, you're estranged from the sacred text of the faith. So it's, it's not really helpful. It also, it shrinks vocabulary rather than expands it. What happens to a lot of people, liberal Christians, they go, I'm not going to use this word, and I'm not going to use this word, and I'm not going to use this word. And before you know it, they're post-Christian. They're sitting in a rubble. They've got, no, they've got no words to talk about anything. They don't believe in anything anymore. They're not having any conversations, and they've just sort of self-destructed. They deconstructed, and they deconstructed, and they deconstructed until there was nothing left. And so I'm arguing that both of those, fossilization, protecting words, substitution, pitching words, are not helpful. What is let me, helpful— Let me just give a little self-disclosure. This might be helpful to you guys. I, I'll say, I, uh, and I've told Jonathan this, I, um, I probably came into the South Bend City Church project 
um, certainly with no interest in fossilization, but more invested in substitution. That was probably the move I was more predisposed toward. And it's, it's actually, I find myself in, in the work, and as, as we try to work out how to be a community of faith, I find myself sort of experiencing the same problem that you're sort of naming and then curious about the third move that you Well, and make. even when I, went in, when I went into this project, I thought I was writing a book about substitution, and then I realized, uh, wow, that doesn't work. Uh, um, what, uh, what and, and you might, you know, we talked about these two triangles. These are the two approaches. The, right, the person yeah, yeah. Who, who, who grabs on for dear life to rooted faith, that per, that's the fossilization person. The person who says, to heck with that, let's go to this, uh, grab onto the changing world. Let's, let's uh, try to be relevant. Let's try to be culturally conversant. Those become the, the great goods. That person loves substitution. But the vision that you're uh, casting here, in some ways, I, I, I'm overlaying that into language, which is what I call language You can language send me your royalties later. It's fine. Yes, you can have. There, I wish I had some of those. <laughs> um, but I call it language transformation, and it's where you play with words. Where we come together as communities uh, of faith, and we begin to think about the words, call them out, not just knowing them, but naming them. What are the words that, 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 that make us feel tension? What are the words that we've used, but we realize we don't really know what those words mean? Let's call those out and then as a community, dream together about what those words might mean. This process, there's a great book that uh, a guy named C.S. Lewis wrote. Some of you may know C.S. Lewis wrote like The Chronicles of Narnia. He also wrote this academic book and it's super boring. So unless, you just ha <laughs> unless you're just trying to get off Ambien, don't buy this book, but <laughs> thick book. And it's called Studies in Words, gripping title. And uh, it's, a, it's a book on linguistics. And in this book, C.S. Lewis talks about language transformation, and he uses the metaphor of a tree. He says it's not that red can become blue. You know, if something can mean anything, then something means nothing. But there's kind of a tree. You think of it as a tree trunk, a core idea around a, a word. But every generation, there has to be new branches that sprout off of this tree. That's how a language continues to live and flourish. And this is what the language of faith has done since the inception of faith. So that's the intro. This is, uh, this is, the, this is the first chunk of the book. Yeah, yes. This is the framework that you this set. This is the framework, yes. That's right, yeah. And then the latter half of the book, which I love, is you, you propose to actually model some of this transformative interaction with language of faith, you talk about wordplay, and you say that's where the life actually is for this yes. language. So now I'd love to just move into one or two of those examples that you offer in the book where you're doing a little bit of this sort of interaction with this language that proposes some transformation, proposes some wordplay. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about sin. We've already mentioned it. Yes. Uh, let's so, well, to explain, maybe if they don't know, the second half of the book, and this book is deeply personal, we've talked about the ideas but there are 19 essays on some of these words where I try to help people who read this wrestle with words like the, some of the words that we've mentioned. Maybe, yeah, so that, maybe that explains yeah, it. We're going to talk about some of those. Yeah, words. so let's, let's pull out a couple examples from the book. Okay. Let's start with sin. Yes, sin. So, yeah, sin's a toughie, right? Uh, sin is actually a great example because here's what's going to happen. Let's say that you're convinced by what I'm saying, or you go and you read my book and you go, oh, I believe in this. You'll go back and maybe you talk to some of your family members and they go, I don't like this. What the Bible says is what the Bible means, and that's what it always means. And if the Bible says that sin is fill in the blank, then that's what it means. Okay. Well, actually, if you go back and you look at Scripture and you look at words, you find that these words actually transform. In the pages of the Bible, 
as they're being used, and then they're transformed in Christian history. So sin is a great example of this. The earliest conception of sin in the earliest writings of the Hebrew scriptures, which is, you know, the Old Testament, is sin is talked about exclusively as a stain. It's something that kind of, it gets on you and you have to get it off, right? And so there are ways to get it off. You can do it through rituals and various things that get the stain off, but the stain keeps coming back. So you keep doing these rituals and you can get it off of you. That way of understanding sin is sort of disappears uh, by the, the last part of the Old Testament and a new understanding of sin comes forward, which is the notion that sin is a weight, it's weight. It's a heavy weight on your shoulders, and it's a communal understanding. It's not individualistic. You remember you had Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It wasn't like, and you get a Day of Atonement, and you get a Day of Atonement. You know, everybody doesn't get their own Day of Atonement. There's one Day of Atonement. It's for the whole community, and there's a representative of the community called the high priest, and he does everything for us. So this idea of like, did you sin? Did I sin? It's not that, that was not what was going on. It was, did we sin as a community? And the assumption was, yes, we, we as a community have sinned. In some ways, we didn't even know that we were doing it. And that was a weight that was lowered onto us. So there was this ritual in the Old Testament. The high priest would bring forward the scapegoat, and he would lay his hands on the scapegoat, right? And that was his way of transferring that weight of sin that was weighing down on us onto the scapegoat. And then they would chase the scapegoat out of the town, symbolizing that the weight had been lifted and we were free for a year because then the weight comes back down. We have to get together and do it all over again, right? That's the way that it worked. Well, this period comes, they, we call it the intertestamental period. That's a fancy word that says between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the world changed, just like it's changing now. You had the rise of the Roman Empire, and that created a lot of these kind of uh, early financial markets. Well, what did that matter? Well, we started talking about sin in a new way. Even though we were rooted in our faith, and that faith had a notion of sin, which is what's broken or what's not right or the world as it ought not to be, that transformed because the world had changed. So the apostle Paul and Jesus, they begin to talk about sin as a debt, that there's this sort of cosmic bank account that each of us have, and we debit out of that when we do something that contributes to the world as it ought not to be. So the apostle Paul is able to say in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. Well, if you put the Apostle Paul in a time machine, the high priest is not going to have any clue what he's talking about because that is not a notion that you're going to find in that, in that period uh, of Jewish history. It's just, not, it's just unheard of. It's never been talked about that way. Jesus actually then imagines it kind of in reverse. He says, okay, if there's a cosmic bank account and you can debit out of that with sin, can you make a deposit? And so Jesus says, he preaches and says, a store up for yourself treasures that will not decay, but will shine in the age to come. So that's the, the New Testament conception primarily is the language of sin as debt. You already have three different conceptions, th two different transformations that go on just in the Bible. And by the time you get to kind of post-biblical history, the Protestant Reformation, I mean, we're, most of us I imagine, or some of us are Protestants, some of you, maybe you go to Mass and then you come here on Tuesdays. But for, for those of us who are Protestants, the pr problem for, for Protestants was in part this notion of sin had become something else, that this notion of sin as debt had metastasized. So now you had indulgences, right? You're like, well, why don't you actually start going go ahead and pay, pay into that, that bank account and uh, evening up your debt now? 
So the Protestant Reformation was in part this project of language transformation. They started to dream again, and then it fractured. So now when you go into a church, you go into any church in South Bend, and you may hear the pastor say, you have a sin problem. Well, the problem-solution language, you're not going to find that in the New Testament. That person, they may not say they believe in language transformation, but they do because they're using new language. Even if you say, you talk about sin as sickness, you know, clinical language is not really New Testament language except for one place where Jesus says, I've come for the sick, but not the healthy. You're not really finding clinical language in the first century, but we live in a scientific age and an age of healthcare. So for us to say you're sin sick, that makes sense to us. What does this mean? Does this mean that uh, the high priest was right and Paul was wrong, or Paul was wrong and uh, Paul was right and we were wrong? It doesn't mean any of these things. It means that language is, is so complex and, and these spiritual words are rich and robust. And all of these things are kind of getting at something that is true, right? So I often say that, that um, they're, they're, they're the truth, but not the whole truth, so help me God. That, that we, with each generation, we're peeling back new layers of what it means to follow Jesus and to be people who are touched by the realities of this world and trying to live into faith, hope, and love. And all of these words, we're coming to new and better understandings or more full understandings of what these words mean. That is the way that the language of faith has always operated. And I'm suggesting that we return to that tradition. We enter back into that tradition and we help revive the language of faith by helping it to transform once again. A couple of things I love about that example. One, I do think it's really interesting that you can see in the Bible the actual evolution of language. I think that's fascinating. And they give a lot of examples like that in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Convert, it, righteousness, it also uh, blessed. It also underscores for me a sort of tragic irony in the fossilization approach, which is I find that one of the greatest challenges to that posture is actually the Bible. And like for me, I would say the more I studied the Bible, the more I, I wasn't able to hold on to a certain kind of rigidly locked in language of my own faith. And it's just kind of ironic that you, you might think that you're preserving, but you're actually precluding the possibility of actually hearing the, the totality of the text and what it's doing and saying. Right. And like, I find like a gospel is another one where I feel like a really robust picture of what the Bible means by the word gospel will often challenge a certain fossilized version of that word. And it's just kind of peculiar that you see people clinging to that when, when the Bible itself might confront that. Right? Right, and even the word gospel is not a religious word until, yeah. until the first century when the Christian community gets a hold of it and transforms it. They yeah. take it from this political Roman political meaning and they say, what about if it being a spiritual reality, yeah. the good news of Jesus? And they reappropriate that word like they do a lot of words in the New Testament. Yeah. I mean, if you read the New Testament, once you, once you see this and you start to read the Bible again, you're gonna be going, oh my gosh, look at the way things are coming alive in every generation of God follower, in the people of God throughout history. Yeah. I just wanna draw attention to another chapter in the book that I found really meaningful. Uh, you do a chapter on the word lost. And um, so Jonathan, he, he looks at the word lost and some of the ways that we might use it to talk about people outside the church, people who aren't here. But then you look at the way that Jesus actually teaches parables of what's lost and found and who does the losing and what that means. And I don't want to make you preach the whole thing, but I, I, uh, there's a moment in the chapter where, where you say, like, what if, uh, to understand what this word lost might mean for us today, what if communities like South and City Church took an inventory of who's not a part of a community like this and in, instead of just sort of labeling them lost and judging them for it, like regarded 
the extent to which we're responsible for the kind of, um, uh, what's the word, I'm like, expelling that has happened for these beloved children of God who don't feel at home in a community like this. Like maybe the burdens on those of us who feel found and not on, not, not on those who feel like they can't belong to a place like this. Yeah, there is, there is this um, notion, and Jesus has his longest uh, teaching on lostness in this trinity of parables. He talks about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the lost son. We know it as the prodigal son. If you go back and read this, you're going to radically change your view of lostness if you think deeply about it. I mean, you think about this. We've always said, yeah, the, the woman cleaning the house is God, or the shepherd there is God. And, but, but then you start to realize the woman lost the coin. Did, did, you, did God lose you, or were you lost before? <laughs> The yeah. shepherd lost the sheep. The shepherd's job is to watch the sheep. The sheep wanders off. Did, did God lose the sheep? Did, so you st- even the father, I mean, in, in, this, in this ancient Jewish household, it was the father's responsibility to keep the family together. I mean, he would have, it would have been assumed that he lost his son, that he would have bared responsibility for the fracturing of the family. It's actually making a point, and I, I cite a bunch of different people in here who are really thoughtful on this, that oftentimes lostness is not the fault of the, the thing that was lost. A sheep is a defenseless animal. It wasn't the sheep's fault that the sheep was lost. A coin doesn't lose itself. The item that was lost, it wasn't the, the, the item's fault. It was the fault of someone outside of that. And so the question for us is, is when have we contributed to the lostness, the marginalization, the oppression, the, the otherness of people even in, uh, in our own communities? It says, you know, um, Jesus, Jesus uses lostness uh, as a phrase that encompasses all who wonder and wander. And so that sort of levels the playing field rather than allowing lostness to be a weapon yeah. that we use to sort of beat up people who don't believe like we do or behave like we do. We're able to talk of all of us as sort of being lost in one way or another. I, in, in that I hear that if somebody is lost, it's not, it, it may not be an indictment upon them. It may be an indictment upon the community which turned its back on them. Yeah, I mean, I say, I'll read this. Yeah, I'll, I'll read a paragraph because it's what he's saying here. It says, maybe we are the shepherd and the woman. How often do we take inventory of our communities? And upon identifying those who are now lost and disconnected from us, take ownership for the role we have played in their estrangement. In this view, lostness does not quarantine outsiders from insiders. It makes space for insiders to own the roles they've played in fracturing community and work to reconcile outsiders. If religious insiders began living that lesson, there would truly be, as Jesus said, rejoicing in heaven. Now, a couple of examples. We're about out of time. Uh, I do want to say a couple of things as we kind of wrap this up. First of all, I should have brought this up Sunday too, but um, at least one part of what you're inviting us into is to read the Bible with like fresh eyes, right? Uh, so we do have Bibles over there. Uh, those are always free for the taking. If you'd like to take one home, please feel free. We'd love for you to get your hands on that. There's some good study notes in those Bibles too. Uh, secondly, I would certainly recommend Jonathan's book. Uh, we've got copies for sale around the, the curtain there tonight. Uh, this is not a plug to pad Jonathan's wallet. I know for a fact he does not get rich off of selling those books. Uh, in fact, I think we bought them from Amazon. Can we confess that? Yeah. Yeah, we ordered those from Amazon today. So <laughs> We had to. We ran out of books, and we're like, uh, let's overnight some books. But, but, but while you're thinking about it, I'd love for you to like, go home with a copy in hand just so you can keep kind of chewing on this stuff together. Now, uh, I do want to briefly give you a chance to talk at least a little bit to point towards some of the ideas you have about people who want to reinvigorate their own language of faith. 
Yeah, I talk about in here a process. There's a piece at the end, and a lot of people were like, why did you include that? It's way too simple. But uh, I think you have to make this simple because people want to know, okay, now what do I do? And I've got this whole thing in the back called a how-to guide for seekers and speakers where we get in communities. And it doesn't have to just be church communities. This has to actually happen in the real world because people aren't coming to church like they used to. And, and the amount of people coming to church is lower and the frequency with which we're gathering is lower. So we have to do this in the places where we live, work, and play every day. So with your friends at the PTA, uh, with your children around the dinner table, with your neighbor, neighbors around the coffee table, with your friends in your lunch group at work, what would you do? And there's this whole process of getting together in community. And by the way, a diverse community. Because you can use a word one way and it's, and it's, you know, I use a word one way and my friend who's a person of color across the table will say, let me tell you how that makes me feel. My friend who's a woman will say, let me tell you how that impacts me. Uh, someone who's a sexual minority would say, let me tell you why that causes pain for me when you talk about it in that way. Let me tell you how that makes me think of God as less than loving or less than good. And you start to realize that the, there are implications to your words that you just living in your own world, only interacting with people who think like you and believe like you and live like you, you start to realize that these words actually have impacts that you never even realized existed. And so it allows you to kind of critique each other and then dream about these words in more beautiful ways that work for all of us. And so that's what I basically ask people to do is to gather around the table where you can kind of look people in the eyes and begin having conversations so that you can then imagine these words in ways that are life-giving and not soul-sucking, and then you will restore confidence again in the vocabulary of faith. Yeah. And I think that that's possible, by the way. Even in a place like South Bend, I actually believe that if just this community if just this community got serious about this, if you walked out and you said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to try this, I'm going to start speaking God again, I think that you could see the language of faith be revived in this community, that these words would come back to life, that they would become instruments of reconciliation and redemption and hope and healing, and that the language of faith would go forth again in South Bend, Indiana, like it hasn't in a very long time. All right. Yeah. Um... Now, uh, we're going to kind of turn toward a, a particular kind of benediction today that is uh, really beautiful. Uh, before we do, Jonathan, I do want to say thank you, man. I'm really grateful uh, for your friendship and for you speaking into our community, for you making the trip from New York. Jonathan gave up like four days, five days to be here, which is a, honestly a big ask for someone who's uh, doing a lot of work right now, but he's been here since Saturday. Really appreciate that, man. And I'm, I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. Um, at the end of the book, the last chapter, uh, I, or the last, at least the last wordplay that you do, um, I found so moving. Uh, I'll kind of set it up and you can take us from there. But this will take us into our sort of benediction tonight. Uh, there's a, a moment in the very beginning of John's gospel. This is one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus where John writes a text that most of us are used to hearing uh, with certain translation. Uh, but Jonathan found um, a sort of historically rooted translation of that text uh, that, that really speaks to what we're talking about today and I think breathes some yeah. new life into it and is in fact really faithful uh, to what John's gospel was saying. Yeah. So tell us what's going on here, and then in a minute we'll stand up and make this our benediction together. Yeah, so um, how many of you, if you grew up in church, you know that John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the... 
word and the word was with God and actually the word was God. Yeah. I mean, this is like crazy, crazy talk that John's got here. The word was God. Well, when the New Testament was being translated from the Greek to the Latin, the, the kind of the big scholar of the day, the, J, the Jason of the day, uh, was, uh, was a guy named Erasmus of Rotterdam. And he was very well respected. He had all these degrees and he was this great translator. And he looked at that Greek word for word and said, well, that word is actually maybe not the only way to kind of render that because that Greek word is not a static thing. It's not something I speak to you and it only involves me. It's a dynamic thing. It goes back and forth between the speaker and the audience. The audience actually participates in the word. And so he rendered it in a way that I think is beautiful. And I want us to maybe say this together as a form of liturgy, that translation that Erasmus came up with uh, back in the 15th century uh, for John chapter one. So if you're able, let's stand to our feet. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, we can put the words in bold on our lips together. So Jonathan will sort of lead us in the reading. Also, it's first Tuesday. Uh, so please plan to stick around. We got uh, snacks. We'd love to hang out and get to know one another a little bit. Uh, but Jonathan, lead us in this reading if you would. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It all arose out of a conversation. Conversation within God. In fact, the conversation was God. So God started the discussion and everything came out of this and nothing happened without consultation. This, this was, was the, the life, life, life that, that was, was the light, light of humankind shining in the darkness, a darkness which neither understood nor quenched its creativity. John, a man sent by God, came to remind people about the nature of the light so that they would observe. He was not the subject under discussion, but the bearer of an invitation to join in. The subject of the conversation, the original light, came into the world, the world that had arisen out of his willingness to converse. He fleshed out the words, but the world did not understand. He came to those who knew the language, but they did not respond. Those who did became a new creation, his children. They read the signs and responded. These children were born out of sharing in the creative activity of God. They, they heard the conversation still going on here, now, and took part, discovering a new way of being people, to be invited to share in a conversation about the nature of life was for them a glorious opportunity not to be missed. Jonathan, thank you again. Uh, grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you soon.